What's up, Bike Rumor fans? I wasn't really sure what I was going to talk about with my guest today, but it ended up being a wonderfully deep dive into speed, power development, and strength training. If you want to get into the weeds on how to get faster and stronger on the bike, you're going to love this episode. My guest is Thompson Remo, lead educator for Watt Bike's professional division. Watt Bike makes a very smart, precise indoor bike that's used by USA Cycling and the UCI for talent identification and their professional division supplies gyms and professional sporting teams around the world. Thompson develops the protocols used to measure fitness and power, and in this episode, talks about what metrics matter, how to effectively combine resistance and cadence, and what training, lifting, and speed workouts specifically translate into riding faster and longer. If you're ready to build power and speed, get ready to take notes. Please welcome Thompson Remo. Hey, Thompson, welcome to the Bike Rumor Show. Thanks for having me, Tyler. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So you are the lead educator at Watt Bike, and I'm kind of hoping you can explain what that means exactly. So I'm the lead educator with Watt Bike, meaning I spend my time going around to professional teams, uh, university athletic departments, university research departments, and medical facilities, helping them collect data using the watt bike and use that to make actionable steps within their training protocols or uh, return from injury regimens. So basically all things watt bike education when it comes to metric analysis. Okay, well then explain metric analysis. Basically using power to make educated training and return to play decisions. Okay, all right. And you guys work with a lot of non-cycling athletes, a lot of teams, you know, I think I saw rugby and other ball sports on there. Um, what was, you know, was that the original focus with this or the, the idea behind Watt Bike or was it cycling first? And then you kind of, the brand came into working with teams and other disciplines. Watt Bike certainly has a strong heritage in cycling. The bikes were originally developed in partnership with British Cycling as the lead-in process to the London Olympics. And since then, the Watt Bike has become the official talent identification tool of the International Cycling Union. So cycling has always been a big part of the Watt Bike heritage. But in the U.S., the athletes who gravitated toward the bike most were athletes in other sports outside of cycling. So we do a lot of work with Major League Baseball, the National Basketball Association, uh, the NHL as part of their performance combine where we're using the bike for off-feet conditioning, for some rehabilitation, and for some uh, force and velocity power profiling for the athletes. And most of the time, these athletes have nothing to do with cycling and have very limited cycling backgrounds, if any. They're typically athletes in other sports. Okay, yeah, we're going to, in a little bit, we're going to talk about like the cycling training and the talent identification, because I think that's pretty interesting, and and, and geek out a little bit on some of the the details of the watt bike like stationary bike itself but my first question i was thinking about this like as i was reading through what you guys do and trying to figure out what to talk about is i mean i've always thought that cyclists were kind of the least versatile athletes out there you know we have great front of leg strength and glutes but we have like no upper body strength no core lateral hip strength no posterior chain development to speak of so like why use a bike to train ball sports folks who need to excel at like all the planes of motion and upper body and everything else 
Well, cycling is just one exercise and there are a ton of exercises to choose from in the weight room when you're working with body weight or free weights or other resistance training modalities. But the beauty of cycling is that it puts you in a fixed range of motion. So once you have your position set up on the bike, you're essentially using the same position every time you jump on. So it makes the testing protocols very repeatable. And when you're pedaling, you're under constant tension throughout the entire 360 degree pedal revolution. So you're able to capture data throughout the entire period of movement as opposed to running or jumping where anytime you're not in contact with the ground, it's basically dead time. Because of the concentric nature of cycling, meaning that you're always pushing, there's never really a reversal or much of a true pulling phase in the sense that you would have when you're performing, let's say, a resistance training exercise like a squat where you lower the weight down, reverse direction, and lift the weight back up. With cycling, you're always pushing in seemingly concentric manner. So we're able to capture data over any duration from a couple of seconds all the way through several minutes or hours. Hmm. Yeah, it's weird. I'd never actually thought about that, but there is no, you know, I'm using air quotes, negative, like eccentric of cycling. But, uh, huh. So what is it like, you know, cycling for training anyway? I, I understand like, okay, so you can measure power, you can measure VO2 and endurance and all that, which are, you know, I think good metrics for any sport. But in, in terms of pure training, does cycling translate well? Like if somebody gets in shape on the bike or uses it for building their their aerobic fitness, how well does that translate? Because I know if I go out for a run, I am going to suck and I'll be super tired and winded in five minutes, but I could go bike for five hours. Absolutely. Well, part of the beauty of cycling is once you have that proper riding position established, your position's relatively fixed and there's not much opportunity for changes in technique. So in comparison to some other more sophisticated body weight or weight training exercises, cycling has a relatively low barrier to entry in terms of the skill requirements. So just about anyone who's able-bodied can hop on a bike and ride pretty quickly and effectively, and we can start capturing data immediately. So there's a little bit less of a learning curve when it comes to the onboarding process of teaching someone how to ride a bike compared to a more complicated weight training exercise. Yeah, probably much less uh, chance of injury as well. Definitely much lower chance of injury because you don't have any impact. Uh, obviously, with running, you're making contact with the ground or the running surface all the time, uh, which can be a little bit jarring. And if you're not developed enough to withstand those forces, that can be potentially setting you up for injury. So with the bike, it gives you an opportunity to test in a safe, repeatable, reliable setting with no mechanical impact or jarring forces on the ground. Right. So then back to the, the translation question of like, how well does this fitness translate to other sports? I know a lot of motocross riders use cycling for conditioning. I think a lot of NASCAR drivers do as well. But again, like I know my aerobic conditioning from cycling does, does not appear to translate well to things like running or other sports because I can go do other stuff and I'll get winded pretty quickly. So is it more of a of metric and hey, let's let's find these two or three metrics that we can easily test on with cycling and then we'll just see if those are improving from everything else we're doing? Or is it let's also use the bike to get in shape for this other stuff? A little bit of both. At the end of the day, anything that we're doing in the weight room is typically going to be considered general physical preparation uh, with the bike being included in that realm. So when we're using the bike, uh, obviously we're not necessarily developing much in terms of sport-specific adaptation. However, 
we can assess aerobic fitness. So we do have quite a few testing protocols built into the bike to determine functional threshold power, uh, VO2 max estimation, or many organizations will use the bike in conjunction with a metabolic cart to get a true VO2 max score. Uh, but we can also assess over much shorter durations, more so anaerobic durations, where we're testing over sprints in, let's say, 6 or 30 or 60 second increments. So throughout those different exercises or uh, exertion durations, we can establish force velocity profiles for the athletes where we can see if they produce power better against heavy resistances at slow velocities or against light resistances at high velocities. And we can do something similar when we do the aerobic fitness testing too. So we can quickly identify areas of aptitude and deficiency and then use that in conjunction with a bunch of other uh, testing methods to determine a full comprehensive athlete performance profile. So the bike is just one step in that process for most sports, but it is a pretty integral step because it is repeatable, reliable, and can be performed pretty frequently. We can test athletes on the watt bike just about every day of the week as long as we're changing the tests and changing uh, some of the ways that the tests are being performed. Okay. And then so from working with all these other types of athletes, you know, what have you learned from them that applies to cyclists? So we've learned that there are very powerful athletes out there who can produce enormous amounts of wattage on the bike who don't necessarily have any cycling background, which again, lends itself a little bit to that uh, transferability conversation. Obviously, you don't have to have a ton of skill to be able to push hard on pedals. Athletes who are pretty strong in the weight room are typically pretty capable of producing high power outputs on the bike. But from there, we can become a little bit more specific by narrowing down the testing parameters. So maybe we ask the athlete to pedal within a certain cadence range for a certain duration, and that'll highlight some of their weaknesses or areas of deficiency in their fitness. And we can use that data to uh, intervene in other ways to bring those areas of fitness up. Hmm. Okay. I got a lot of questions about that, like cadence and power in particular. So I'm going to just rattle them off in random order. Um, so like I, I've got the white bike here and been testing. And one of the things I like about it is how easy it is to adjust the fit to fit different people. So I'm six, two, my wife is you know, five, seven on a good day. And, you know, we both ride the same bike with like, literally it takes five seconds to adjust it between us. And, um, when she's on it, you know, as a, as a non-cyclist, just using it for just basic exercise. And I've, I've noticed this with a lot of beginner riders or people who just, you know, ride a bike to get around town or for fun is their cadence is somewhere between 50 and 60 RPM. And, you know, for me and for most, you know, like, you know, what I'm using, again, air quotes, cyclists, like real cyclists is, you know, the cadence is somewhere between 80 and 95 RPM. And I've found that that higher cadence is much more efficient, but for somebody who's starting off in the slower range and then trying to increase that, like I remember when I first started practicing to get my cadence up that high, I, I would get winded pretty quickly pedaling at a higher cadence. And even now, if I try and pedal like 110 RPM, I get winded really quickly, even if it's super light resistance. You know, what have you guys found in terms of developing cadence or how important is that? And how does that, you know, like what's that range that you guys have found with athletes that seems to be the sweet spot? Obviously, from a pure cycling standpoint, having the ability to vary your cadence drastically has a huge impact on performance. But obviously, what we've noticed is that the longer the exertion duration is, the narrower the range of usable cadences becomes. So elite track cyclists, for example, have the capability of uh, producing well over 230 RPM on the watt bike. 
And that's done typically just for a few seconds. Whereas if you're riding for several minutes, you're not going to be holding 200 plus RPM. Your sweet spot for cadence is probably going to fall somewhere between 80 and 100 revolutions per minute. Um, if you're a little bit more of a masher, it might even be lower than that. So when we look at these testing durations, we try to identify a usable range of cadences that's going to align with the physiological parameters that we're trying to assess. So if we're doing a six-second peak power test, we can use practically any resistance level on the bike because someone will be able to spin either very quickly or very slowly against heavy resistance for just a few seconds. But the longer that test becomes, the more selective we have to be with that resistance level. So if we're doing a 20-minute functional threshold power test, we have to make sure that we're choosing the appropriate resistance setting to make sure the athlete is staying within an appropriate cadence range to measure the physiological output we're trying to see. Okay, I'm thinking, so the way I interpret that is that if you're just trying to do like a 5 to 10 second power test to see what somebody's capable of putting out, that the cadence, it really doesn't matter. But I, I imagine there has to be some kind of upper and lower, well, maybe just an upper limit because I don't, like I, the resistance would have to be so low for me to pedal, you know, over 120 RPM, let alone anything close to 200, which seems crazy to me. Um, and like, is, is it really the the output, the power output is going to be the same, whether I'm spinning like crazy or just mashing something super hard? So that's a great question. So that's exactly where the force velocity profiling comes in. So if we're doing, let's say, a six-second peak power test, we're typically going to perform that test on a variety of different resistance levels and see which resistance level and corresponding cadence allows the athlete to produce their best power output. So someone might produce their best power at an average cadence of 135 RPM for six seconds, whereas at 145 RPM, they produce a little bit less power. So when we're using that information, uh, let's say we test them on a heavier resistance still and they produce worse power at 120 RPM average, we're going to know that that athlete falls somewhere in the middle and they're a little deficient on the strength side. So if we spend a little bit more time lifting weights and increase their force producing capabilities, they may be able to see better power outputs on those heavier resistance levels that align with maybe that 120 or 125 cadence range. So there's still going to always be a uh, resistance level and corresponding cadence that allows that athlete to produce the best power output. And then we train on either opposite side of that to drive the response we want. So we can make an athlete faster or slower, depending upon where their best output is right now. Hmm. Okay. So I want to get to the strength training aspect of that for improvement for cyclists. But the uh, the immediate takeaway for me is that like if I were trying to figure out, okay, where's my fastest sprint, right? Like whether I'm just trying to beat my friends to the county line or actually like racing to the finish line. I would, it sounds like I would want to, you know, get on the trainer, get on the walk bike and set it for, you know, X resistance and spin up as fast as I can. And then, you know, change the resistance, you know, maybe like, I don't know what, 10 Watts at a time and just kind of figure out what cadence I can get and find that, that range where over 10 seconds I can produce the maximum amount of power. Is that kind of like a layman's way of testing that? Absolutely. And to simplify that even further, uh, since we've been a part of the International Cycling Union's uh, talent identification protocols, we've established some norms for the resistance settings 
uh, or the recommendations for the resistance setting for each of the testing durations. So we have recommended resistances for athletes performing the six-second peak power test, the 30-second sprint test, uh, the four-minute aerobic test, and even all the way out to a 20-minute functional threshold power test. So once we've determined that starting resistance level and uh, seen results from that initial test, then we can start testing at resistance levels that are slightly higher than uh, the initially tested one or slightly lower than the initially tested one, and we'll be able to see where the athlete is performing at his or her best. Hmm, Cool. And is that a test? Because there is, to go with the walk bike, you guys have an app or system called the hub that has training programs and all that. Is that one of the tests that you can do in there is to kind of like find your own personal sweet spot of resistance versus cadence? Absolutely. So we have a full suite of tests built into the Watt Bike Hub app. Uh, the Watt Bike Hub basic version is free for all Watt Bike users. So anyone can go into the app store and download it right away. Uh, within those testing descriptions, you can click the learn more tab to find the list of resistance recommendations for each test. And it also gives an explanation of how to conduct that test properly to see the best results. Uh, we do have quite a bit of literature online that describes some of the testing protocols, why they were developed and how they're performed and how you can interpret some of the data behind those as well. Cool. Yeah, you'll have to send me the links for that because I wasn't I was just kind of like skimming through your website. But um if you get the direct links, I'd love to share those in the show notes for this post for everyone to check out. Is um okay, so the bike itself is, you know, it's a stationary bike. It's fairly expensive in the grand scheme of things. Uh piece of equipment. But um so for people who can't afford it or just don't have space for adding something else on top of whatever trainer they already have, can anybody use the hub app? And do this stuff? Like, is it a subscription thing or how does that work for non Watt bike owners? So, the Watt bike hub app only worked in conjunction with Watt bikes. Uh, so, unless you have access to a Watt bike, you might be limited. However, there are quite a few private performance facilities and commercial gyms who have Watt bikes, which may be available for usage. So, if you're using one in a commercial gym setting, you can certainly link up to the Watt bike hub app, which will allow you to save and record all of your data. Uh, we do have integrations with Training Peaks and other third-party platforms, which allow you to push that data over so you don't have to deviate from your coach's plan. In fact, you can work it right in. But one of the big things with the Wattbike Global Agenda is making the testing and talent identification accessible, which is one of the reasons we're involved with the USA Cycling Search for Speed initiative, which is aiming to identify emerging talent in track cycling where they're using the Watt bike to test the peak power of young prospective cyclists who may have never had any competitive cycling experience before. Cool. Is um, Okay, so I don't want to like uh, discourage people from listening. Like, the, I don't want people to drop off now because they don't have a Watt bike or don't plan on getting one because there's, like you said, there's they are at gyms and things like that. Um, I imagine if you're in Boulder, Colorado, there's probably maybe easier access because of the USA Cycling Connection. Yes. Uh, the U.S. Olympic Training Center is a heavy user of the Watt Bikes and have been since Watt Bikes came to the U.S. nearly a decade ago. Uh, however, we do have bikes in commercial facilities scattered all throughout the world. Is there, like for the U.S. anyway, um, is there a particular chain like 24-Hour Fitness or something that has has your bikes? I would say it's situational at this point. Um, we do have bikes not that these are publicly accessible, but hosted in over 90% of the NHL team facilities, over 90% of Major League Baseball and the NBA, um, and a little over half of the NFL. So these bikes are 
literally scattered all throughout the country. However, from a commercial accessibility standpoint, uh, one of the best ways to find out would be to get in contact with us directly to see if there's a bike in your area. Gotcha. Or, you know, maybe schedule a tour for the pro stadiums and just hop on one real quick <laughs> when they're not looking. <laughs> you could hope. Yeah, maybe. So then, all right, I want to get back to the strength training part of it then. So from what you've learned, you know, like, cause I, I do deadlifts and squats and stuff and try, and I've noticed that it, it has helped a ton with my ability to climb and, and to produce much better power on the bike. Um, is there like, what's the kind of recommendation that, you know, a real general recommendation for cyclists in terms of incorporating weight training and strength training for building power on the bike? That's one of my favorite questions, Excellent. Uh, especially in strength and conditioning. A lot of people often ask, how strong is strong enough for my sport, especially if your sport isn't lifting on its own. So if you're a competitive cyclist or soccer player or athlete in any other sport that doesn't revolve completely around lifting weights, people always wonder how much time they really need to spend in the gym to make it worthwhile, but not overdo it. And an easy answer to that, especially using the watt bike is when your strength is still continuing to rise, but your power outputs on the bike are no longer continuing to increase. That's probably when you've reached your threshold, at least for the time being. So when you're lifting weights or doing some uh, off-feet conditioning or uh, other types of resistance training in the off-seasons or the winters or even in conjunction with the rest of your cycling in the lead-up to the season, we want to make sure that anything you're doing is resulting in greater power outputs on the watt bike and transitionally uh, greater power outputs on your actual bike, whether it's a road bike, mountain bike, or track. So lift weights, train on the watt bike, test on the watt bike, and make sure that your power output is going up. And if it's not, you're probably doing something wrong. Or you've reached your max, right? Or kind of the for max the time been, being. for the time being. Yeah. Um, it could just be that maybe you're doing a ton of heavy lifting, uh, but the movements that you're doing are a little too slow and maybe you're not doing anything fast or explosive enough. Maybe you need to incorporate some more plyometrics or ballistics or real explosive high force, um, but much higher velocity activities. Those can also help you break through that plateau. So maybe you've been lifting a ton, but you're starting to kind of slow down. So you just need to speed things up a little bit. So that's where doing some jumping, uh, doing some high cadence sprints on the watt bike, all those things can help you break through that plateau and allow you to continue lifting, uh, but also supplement it with some more of the fast activities. Right. So like doing like, you know, like a 10 second negative or eccentric on the squat is maybe not helping your bike. Once your power output stops increasing on the bike, that's probably the time to consider taking those out or at least adjusting toward a more of a speed bias. Okay. And then, so what about, I've always been curious about mixing uh, weights with plyometrics or weights with bike, right? So like if I were to do a leg workout and then get on the bike and do some some high cadence things or a couple of you know short intervals or something, does that help the the strength training part of it translate to bike or am I just kind of making that up? It all depends. Uh, typically, when we're looking at short duration power outputs, so short sprints, we want to try to isolate those efforts as much as we can. So a great example of this would be if you go run a mile as fast as you can, that's going to take a handful of minutes, probably for most people anywhere beyond four minutes all the way up to 10 or 12, you're going to be pretty tired. So if you run that mile and then you try to squat as much weight as you possibly can for one rep immediately after that, that's probably not going to go too well. So you want to be well rested and fully recovered before these sprint efforts as well, 
especially if you're using these to make programming decisions. So you'd want to be fully rested, ready to go before you perform a 6 or 30 or 60 second sprint. Um, the weight training can be adjusted in a few different ways around that. But typically, you're going to want to strength train when you're fresh as well. Because in order to produce the most force, you need to be in that same fresh state. So we wouldn't necessarily recommend doing a heavy interval session and then going immediately into the weight room and trying to lift. You want to be fully recovered and in a state where you're ready to produce as much force as possible over a short duration. So the weight room would be your shorter, heavier, higher force or higher velocity movements. The watt bike is the transition, converting that strength and force producing capability you develop in the gym to the playing field. And then the playing field could be your road bike if you're a cyclist or the soccer field or football field if you're a ball sport athlete. Right. What about the flipping that around though, where you do the the weightlifting first and then say get on the bike just, you know, like immediately after, you know, almost as a cool down maybe, but doing just a couple of specific drills. Like does that help take that that weight training and translate that effort into cycling in any way? Like is there a, a different physiological adaptation if you say, okay, yeah, just, hey, body, remember that you just did these heavy weights and now you're cycling. Like, does it, is there any kind of connection made by the body or is it really just, no? Cycling can definitely be performed after a strength training workout. However, transitioning immediately from a strength training session to a cycling session isn't necessarily always the best idea, typically because you're going to be fatigued from that strength training session and you might not get the most out of the cycling workout. So if you're just using the bike for a cool down, that's fine. But one of the ways athletes will often integrate the cycling into a strength training workout would be through opportunities like contrast sequences where you can move directly from a lifting exercise to a jumping exercise to a sprint on the bike. That's one great way to transition from slow speed, high force to medium force, high velocity to even slightly lighter force, but higher velocity still. So we might move from a heavy squat to a bodyweight jump or jump squat to a high cadence, light resistance sprint on the bike. And that tends to help well with transferability. Okay, that's cool. I mean, it's actually like a more complex thing, building the plyometrics in there between them. But uh, so like, if somebody were going to say, do just, I'm going to do strength training one day, you know, I'm going to ride my bike a few days a week, and they're all on separate days versus that routine of like strength plus plyometric plus bike on the same day. You know, if they were going to do an equal volume over the course of like two months, like how much faster or stronger do you think the person doing the combo workouts would be versus the separate workouts? So as long as you're completing all of the required work throughout a training cycle, uh, you should be able to see comparable results. So you don't necessarily have to do all of the work on one day. So you don't have to lift and jump and ride on the bike on the same day. You can scatter that throughout the week. Uh, there are strategic ways to combine them if you are a little bit time crunched. But if you're doing some focus lifting and you're doing the right things when you're riding, meaning you're training with some sort of structure where you have a particular duration that you're trying to test yourself on and a particular range of cadences or resistances that you're trying to test over that duration, you'll still end up with the desired result. So a lot of it comes down to personal scheduling, which is one of the great things about the Watt Bike because the capabilities of the bike allow you to test and train over very short durations. So you can do those short, sharp sprint efforts that you might not be able to do 
on your road bike or mountain bike on a stationary trainer. However, you can do all your sprint work along with your endurance work on the watt bike in a platform that's very robust and not going to break under those high forces of the sprint style efforts, even if you're a very, very powerful rider. Gotcha. Okay. Because I think you guys go up to 2,500 watt max resistance. Uh, 2,500 watts max resistance on the Atom, which is our residential smart bike. However, we do have air-resisted bikes that are typically used by the professional sporting organizations. Those would be the Watt Bike Pro and Trainer. And the Watt Bike Pro can produce resistance upwards of 3,700 watts in resistance. So obviously, there aren't too many people out there pushing even over 3,000 watts. Yeah, I was so ask, the bike like, is capable of providing... <laughs> <laughs> Nobody. Um, the <laughs> highest we're seeing globally right now typically come from BMX racers or uh, very powerful uh, explosive sport athletes where they're producing 2,700, 2,800 watts peak. Huh. Okay. For for cyclists, when it comes to strength training and stuff, you know, one of the arguments I've heard from at least one pro is that they don't want to do a lot of strength because obviously it adds weight, but the 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 interesting thing they said that I'd never heard before was that it also, you know, you build more muscle, those muscles have to get more oxygen and which means more blood. And so you're, you know, you're actually diverting or, you know, you're, you're using up your resources of blood. And, and they were talking more about like upper body and this was, you know, like a an enduro mountain biker. And I was just thinking like, man, you know, like, wouldn't it be beneficial to be really strong up top too, because, you know, more injury prevention, but also handling the bike. And they're like, yeah, I don't want the extra weight and I don't want all the extra muscle taking up blood from my legs. And he, you know, what are your thoughts on that? That is definitely true. The more muscle you have, the more oxygen it requires to support. So being excessively muscular isn't necessarily going to benefit you from an endurance cycling standpoint. However, it takes much, much longer to become very strong and powerful than it does to flatten yourself out to become a good endurance athlete. So it's easier to lose that muscle that you build if you accidentally build a little bit too much than it is to try to build that in the first place. So that's not typically a big concern for a lot of endurance athletes, especially since many endurance athletes are endurance athletes for a reason. They don't like lifting weights necessarily. They'd rather spend a couple hours out on the bike or running or swimming or performing the activity of their choice typically outside. So when it comes to the muscle mass requirements for cycling, one of the big things that we pay attention to, especially with the higher cadence uh, and shorter, sharper efforts would be postural integrity. Because having a stable platform to transfer power to is still very critical, whether you're a sprinter or an endurance rider, you still need to make sure that you have a strong midsection, strong torso, strong spinal support to be able to create a rigid platform to transfer power to so you're not leaking energy. You know, I'm hearing that and I think a lot of people probably hear that as like, okay, I need a strong core, but I, I imagine there's a lot more with, you know, I think your lats are pretty involved in that being able to kind of like pull your shoulders back and down and hold like a tight, you know, triangle on the bike so that you're, you know, cause you could have a strong core and a weak, you know, connection there from there to the handlebars and it's still going to be a little floppy and loose, right? Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of people, when they think about the core, they think about doing a ton of ab work. Typically it's high repetition, light resistance for the abs, but especially in a cyclist case, the abs are kind of for show. Um, the, <laughs> the primary responsibility of the abs is to prevent you from hyperextending backward and, you know, having your rib cage fall off the 
top of your back of your body. So we really want to focus on the obliques, the spinal erectors, and all the muscles stabilizing the spine. So that includes the lats and upper back. That'll allow you to create some torso rigidity, which is going to allow you to produce a little bit more force. So the abs wouldn't necessarily be the primary concern. You'd almost want to focus more on the hip flexors when it comes to the, the pulling portion of the pedal revolution. But then spending a lot of time working on the, the sides of the torso and the back of the torso, that's where all the postural integrity is going to come from. Yeah, good old hip flexors. I think you know, a lot of people that have, myself included, you know, some hip tightness and pain. I, I feel like it ultimately comes down to the hip flexors in a large part. What, um, like, I'll do like bands, you know, put the bands around my ankles and do like side things and crisscrosses and some other exercises for that. And then occasionally do, um, you know, we'll go to the parking decks and do like that kind of like crisscross, you know, sideways skipping type thing to, to work on, you know, both mobility and, and strength, but is there, are there better options or ways to strengthen the hip flexors when it comes to a cycling specific type movement? Definitely. When it comes to remodeling tissue or creating actual structural changes, it requires load. And the more load, typically the more significant adaptation you're going to see. So one of the common mistakes I see pretty often with endurance athletes is they perform their core work a little too lightly. So adding a little bit more resistance and making sure there's some movement component is going to be a huge part of remodeling the tissues to make sure that you're developing a robust structure, which will lend itself to that postural integrity. So performing uh, heavy-weighted torso rotations, maybe with a cable or flywheel product, um, performing real, real heavy uh, hanging knee raises or hanging leg raises. Those will help develop a lot of uh, strength through the front of the torso, but then also making sure that you balance everything out by working the posterior chain very, very heavily as well. So a lot of back extensions, uh, Romanian deadlifts, weighted hyperextensions, all of those things are going to be great for making sure that you're balanced and you're not excessively tight through the hips because if you have really strong glutes, hamstrings, and spinal erectors, it's hard to stay too tight through the hips. You have a lot more uh, potential to produce force through the back of the body than you do through the hip flexors alone. So making sure that you spend plenty of time on the back and then just enough time on the front to make sure you're hitting all the, the targets. Yeah. Is there a, a range of motion like in degrees where, you know, for the, the um, torso rotation, because, you know, I've, I've heard different things, right? And I see different things online, of course, as most people do, you know, like I've heard you just stand with the resistance, like for instance, taking like a resistance band and hooking it to the wall, right? And then you step sideways so that you're, you're lateral to it and just kind of like put your arms in and out. And that creates this tension where you're working your obliques because you have to hold your body straight, you know, like rigid against that resistance versus like twisting almost like a, a golf swing where you're, you know, moving your obliques and more is there a pro or a con to either in terms of you know effectiveness but also like keeping your spine safe yeah so there's something to be said for both of those so one of the common things you'll see in a lot of the strength and conditioning literature is uh working on anti-rotation as well so re resisting forces that are trying to pull you out of linear alignment so when you're performing movements that are a little bit more dynamic in nature so performing an active rotation where you're um 
pulling that band that you're mentioning away from the attachment point and then letting it pull you back toward the attachment point and performing a series of repetitions, that would be a little bit more of an active or dynamic movement, which is going to break down tissues, which will ultimately grow back bigger and stronger once you let them recover. And that's where you'll create those structural changes. Uh, isometrics, so where you're just holding a position for a few seconds or up to you know a longer duration of time, those are movements that can be high stress if you're loading them heavily, but aren't necessarily going to cause the same tissue remodeling because you don't have that movement, which is going to be responsible for the uh, tissue breakdown. So you can certainly perform both. Uh, performing the isometrics can help develop strength, which will be transferred into something a little bit more usable in sport through more active and dynamic movements. So all are great. But I would say the biggest thing is just start doing the movements in the first place, um, figure out where you're strong, where you're weak, and then make tweaks as you go along. But basic movement patterns would certainly include those uh, torso rotations, hip extensions, hip flexions. So just doing some of those with a decent amount of resistance that's going to cause some tissue change. That's step number one. Right on. I think for a lot of people, that's probably going to be a great start that'll carry them for quite some time before they need to figure out anything else is... So the the other question I have is like neuromuscular development. And, and what I mean by that is there's something to be said for doing really heavy weight where you're like literally having to recruit every muscle fiber, because if you never do that, I don't think your body is really able to recruit all of those fibers. And by training at an extremely high load safely, of course, um, you, you teach yourself to recruit more fibers. And so maybe you don't actually have to get a whole lot stronger. You just need to be able to actually recruit the muscle that you have more effectively. Um, I don't know. Any thoughts on that? Absolutely. Yeah. The more intensely you're exercising, and by intensely, I mean uh, over short durations, either using really heavy loads or trying to perform movements really quickly, the more fibers you're going to engage. So if you want to maximally recruit all the muscle fibers through, let's say, your legs, you're going to either need to load them up with uh, something heavy. So whether that's a heavy squat or leg press or deadlift or any other movement, um, you're going to need to make sure that you have an appropriate amount of weight that's going to force you to engage as many muscle fibers and motor units as possible. Or you can move very quickly, uh, I mean, plyometrics or short sprints, which are going to try to force your nervous system to engage as much muscle fiber uh, at as quick of a rate as possible to make sure that you're producing the best output. So when you do both of those things, when you lift heavy weights and when you sprint quickly, both of those things have a high neural demand, which can be very taxing. Your nervous system can fatigue just like your muscles can. Uh, but it is going to have a very high level of training effectiveness because you are engaging so much fiber at such a high rate. One of my favorite quotes is that endurance is being good at doing very little. And that's not a knock on endurance athletes. It's that when you're performing endurance activities, it's all about getting the work done with the least amount of effort possible. So you're trying to recruit as little muscle as possible to either ride at the appropriate number of watts or to maintain the proper running pace, but you're not necessarily engaging anything maximally in endurance activities. In fact, you really don't want to, to be a real good endurance athlete. However, you still do want to train the ability to recruit everything maximally because that'll also show you how to shut those things off. So if you can get really good at lifting maximally, it makes everything sub-maximal seem relatively easy. Huh. I hadn't heard it 
listed the other way of like learning how to not use any muscle that you don't need to be using. But I think the other thing that I try and tell people too is, you know, if you get really strong, if you're 200% stronger, then you're using, you know, one quarter of your muscle as opposed to half of your muscle to do the same thing. And so you're using a much smaller percentage of your total available strength to do whatever it is you need to do, which sounds like the, you know, what you just said, the endurance is doing as little as possible to accomplish the goal. Absolutely. Yeah. Even when you look at uh, elite cyclists, when you put an EMG on them during endurance activities, let's say they're riding up a big mountain pass, you don't want to see it lighting up brightly. Uh, You want to see very, very faint contractions. So you still want to see them producing great power, but with very little force and very little perceived effort. So the better you can get at that, obviously, the better endurance athlete you're going to be. However, in order to have a real powerful sprint at the end of the race, you need to try to engage as much of everything as possible to make sure that you produce the most power you possibly can to win. So it helps to be good at both. Obviously, if you spend a little bit too much time on either one of those things, you're going to end up uh, trending your physiological capabilities in that direction. So as an endurance athlete, you don't necessarily need to focus on being as strong as you can year round, but it should certainly be a significant component of your off-season training and your preseason training to make sure that you're putting yourself in an advantageous state to start your endurance training from. Right on. So I got two questions. Just I'm going to list them just so I don't forget them. Uh, the second one is going to be about muscular maintenance throughout the season. But the um, the first one is in terms of full muscular, you know, neuromuscular recruitment. You know, you can do it with a really heavy weight. You can do it with the you know the speedy plyometrics and some. But is if you get on the bike and put it on a, a fairly hard resistance, and then try and just like sprint all out, you know, like what most people would consider like a zone five, you know, VO2 max plus or anaerobic plus type thing that maybe you're only going to last like five to 10 seconds on it. Is that, are you able to recruit that same level of, you know, neuromuscular activity on that? Or are you better trying to train that stuff off the bike? So when you're performing a true maximal effort, let's say you're performing a 30 second sprint, Obviously, you want to start that sprint as hard as you can, and you're going to decay throughout that effort. So the pedaling gets sloppier toward the end. The power output starts to diminish throughout that effort. And that's the way you want to perform a test. However, when you're training for that, you don't necessarily want to take the same approach. You don't want to start hard and finish lightly because you're not spending that full duration training at the proper intensity. So when it comes to the training side of things, you actually want to try to sustain the highest output possible without decay. Hmm. So when we're performing cycling efforts, basically, we want to make sure that you're producing the appropriate amount of power to drive the physiological adaptation that we want. Okay. And then for muscular maintenance because a lot of people will will lay off or you know greatly diminish the strength training the weightlifting part of it throughout the season if they have a you know a full race season is riding the bike going to be enough to maintain strength and and if you want mass mass gains throughout you know say a three to four month season or do you need to continue to do some weightlifting in there to to keep that up Well, as you mentioned just a moment ago, um, many cyclists would consider one method of strength training to be using a very heavy resistance for whatever duration they can push it for. Uh, You run into a couple challenges with that, one of which being, in some cases, if the resistance level is too heavy, the power output that you're producing isn't necessarily in line with the 
top power output that you can sustain for that duration. So let's say you can hold, you know, 500 watts for a minute. Um, but if you use a super heavy resistance level, it might be so heavy that you can only hold uh, 380 or 400. You're going to end up training at too low of an intensity and it's not going to drive the response that you want. So you still have to make sure that you're training within a reasonable range of your top end or your optimal power producing capability. So you want to stay within a range of cadences on the bike that's going to be appropriate for the response that you're trying to drive. One of the other things with cycling is that it is, as I mentioned, primarily concentric in movement uh, pattern. So as you're going through that concentric phase, you're not necessarily breaking down as much tissue as you would eccentrically. And for the listeners, that would be the eccentric phase of a movement is typically the lowering phase of the movement. So if you're squatting, it's as you're sinking down to the squat before you actually stand up, that's where the majority of the tissue damage is going to occur. So you're going to remodel much more tissue when you're engaging in exercises that do have an eccentric or a reversal component as opposed to purely concentric activity. In fact, many um, athletes, as they're priming for competition, if they're trying to avoid gaining any excess muscle mass, they might engage in concentric-only activities. But if you're trying to build mass, you want something with an eccentric component, which means you're actually lowering weight down or working against resistance through that lowering phase and then reversing direction and lifting concentrically. All right. So for the cyclists who don't want to add mass, if they may try and prioritize on bike workouts to get that then are they you know selling themselves short in terms of total performance never mind just like being an all-around functional human if we're talking pure cycling performance is it better to avoid that eccentric phase just to reduce mass building yeah i'd say you're sacrificing long-term development for short-term gains So if you're only performing those concentric activities, that'll work for a little while, but the strength producing capabilities that you're going to have in the long run aren't going to be anything near what you'd achieve if you engaged in some uh, activities, which included the eccentric component as well. So throughout the majority of the year, you definitely still want to make sure those are involved. But if you're leading up to a peak competition, that's where you can get a little bit fancier with the training and maybe uh, cut out some of the eccentric stress and work in predominantly concentric movement patterns. Right on. All right, so let's uh, we're going to transition to the product side of it by starting with the talent program because I'm I'm curious how that works and, and what in particular you and USA Cycling and the US UCI are looking for you know and like what does that test look like and you know what's what are some numbers that people can kind of like try for themselves and see if they're anywhere close to being you know pro worthy. So with talent identification, obviously, the more power you can produce in this case, the better. So with the International Cycling Union, the UCI, we've established some baselines or performance benchmarks for a variety of different ability levels. So there are some standards for where you should be at each stage of development. Typically, right now for the USA Cycling Search for Speed Initiative, we're looking at very short, uh, easy to implement tests. So starting off with the six second peak power test. The reason that test is six seconds as opposed to only three seconds is because not only are we looking at the ability to produce high force at a very quick rate throughout the start of that test. So basically trying to see how quickly the rider can accelerate from a dead start, but we're also trying to see the leg speed that that athlete can wind up to within a very short period of time. So we use standard standardized resistance settings 
Um, those resistance settings are different for males versus females. And the athletes perform that test with the expectation of starting as intensely as they can and trying to wind up to the highest cadence possible. There are some thresholds. As I mentioned, the best riders in the world for power output are typically producing 2,700 plus watts. Um, we, to my knowledge, haven't found too many athletes in the U.S. on the track cycling side of the program who have been able to do that yet. So we're still looking. So if you know anyone out there who's interested in testing their medal on the watt bike and trying to become the next Olympic hopeful in track cycling, this is a call out to you to hop on the bike and show us what you've got. But right USA Cycling has been working diligently on trying to take watt bikes to a lot of key events, uh, both BMX events, road cycling events, mountain biking, and so on, and even local community initiatives to test athletes who wouldn't otherwise have exposure to the watt bike or wouldn't have an opportunity to ride on one and test on one. So when you perform the test, uh, typically we're looking for younger athletes in the uh, high school to early 20s developmental age range where you can hop on the watt bike, test your six-second peak power output, and if you produce sufficient power, you'll be invited to the uh, next step of the talent identification process, which involves more comprehensive testing over some longer durations and also some jumping testing, some ground-based running testing, and a bunch of traditional strength training uh, testing interventions. Cool. Um, the three-second versus six-second thing was interesting to me because one of my questions I wanted to ask you about was like how quickly you know the Watt bike and smart trainers in general can adjust, you know, like, let's say you're riding Zwift and, or training, whatever it is, right? You hub app and you have a workout where you go from, I'm just making up numbers here, right? From like a 100 uh, watt zone to like a 200 watt or 240 watt, you know, there is, and rightly so a ramp period. So you're not going literally from 100 to 200, it kind of ramps you into that. But you, depending on the device, it could take, you know, a second to two seconds to get there. So for these tests, these six-second tests, are they literally starting at 2,000 watts and just from zero go? Or like, do you ramp into that? And then once it hits that desired wattage resistance, then the timer starts. So typically for the watt bike tests that are uh, sprint style, we're performing those on the air-resisted models. Uh, such as the Watt Bike Pro, those can be performed on the smart bikes as well. And when we're using the smart bike, we're often not using the ergo mode, rather we're using the gear mode. So we're using a set gear to determine the appropriate amount of starting resistance, and then the athlete just sprints as hard as he or she can. So when we're performing those tests, we basically want to ensure that the athlete starts from a dead start in the sprint test, and the bike is sampling force at a rate of at least 100 times a second in most model cases, if not a 1,000 times a second, like our Atom X model, where we can capture data over very, very small increments. So we're talking fractions of a pedal revolution. So those peak power numbers that I mentioned before, the 2,700 plus watts, those occur over just a very, very small portion of one pedal revolution. But we can break that data down into extreme detail. So... In a lot of cases with other sports such as baseball right now, they might use the watt bike for testing the readiness of pitchers and catchers by having them perform a very short sprint rather than performing a jump test as they might normally do. So for athletes who need to take some time off of their feet and 
don't necessarily want to be exposed to that mechanical stress of jumping or running, they might test their peak power producing capability on the watt bike because there's no impact associated with it, but they can collect that power output number in a very, very short amount of time. So they might perform a sprint as short as two or three seconds in duration as opposed to six. But either way, we can capture all that data over the, the shortest durations all the way out to several minutes or hours. So that that peak number, let's just use the 2700 watt. That's literally you're hitting that for maybe one one hundredth of a second or something. It's not like a 2700 watt average over six seconds. It's just what's the highest number that it is hit at any point during that test. Exactly. Uh, okay, gotcha. So I'm curious the the people who are hitting 2000 plus, like let's say they hit a 2000 or a 2700 watt, like what is their actual average over that six seconds? Do you know? So we've seen some pretty extreme averages, plenty of averages for six seconds over 2300 watts, which is <laughs> on the impressive side. Yeah. The highest I've actually looked at and remember hitting was somewhere around 1200. I think it was just over 1200. Um, and I was dying and that was for like a couple of seconds. Um, so that Absolutely. is yeah, anything over 2000 is bonkers. Yeah. And oftentimes those are being produced by bigger athletes, but that's not always the case. We do have some very uh, fast athletes who aren't necessarily even over 200 pounds in body weight. So there are some very talented individuals out there who have put their skills to the test on the watt bike. And one of the other ways to equalize things a little bit is by using power to weight ratios as the opportunity to compare metrics from one athlete to another. So if you're testing an athlete who's 250 pounds versus 150 pounds, you can look at those relative peak power outputs and get a much more even comparison. And speaking of with the ratios, right? Like let's say you have a hundred pound rider that can put out a hundred watts and a 200 pound rider that can put out 200 watts. Are they literally going to be, all else being equal, of course, um, are they going to be able to go up the hill at the same exact rate or is there some kind of like sliding slope in terms of as the heavier you get like you need like a a higher exponential of power to make up for that uh so when it comes to riding up hills uh gravity becomes a big concern so obviously power to weight ratios are going to be pretty critical in determining the the speed at which you're able to climb so when we're evaluating endurance riding capabilities, um, typically the, the heavier riders are going to have a more challenging time going up those big hills or mountains. However, when we look at the sprinting capabilities, and especially in the case of track cycling where you're not going uphill, you're typically encountering a lot of uh, air resistance or a high drag coefficient and trying to minimize that as much as possible through uh, technique and positioning and equipment interventions, that's where the bigger athletes tend to do pretty well. So if you can produce a lot of power, you can get yourself into a good position and you have some solid equipment, that's where you're really going to be able to show your skills on the bike. Yeah. But like from a pure ratio standpoint, like if I'm twice as heavy as the next guy, do I need twice as much power to keep up with them on the mountain? Or is that does that math not work out in the real world? Uh, there's a couple other factors that go into play. But generally speaking, yeah, if you're a, a much heavier individual, you're going to need to be able to produce a lot more power than that lighter rider. Gotcha. Okay. So I did want to talk about the equipment itself. You know, with the Watt bike, I, I've been impressed with how smoothly and quickly it does change from, you know, like, you know, ramp up the power for intervals and then fall off for the others. But even, you know, as quick as it is, is there, um, you know, the challenge I see with any of these uh, smart trainers is if you have like a workout where there's like 10 second intervals and you're spending 
you know, a cumulative total of two to three seconds ramping and falling off at the end of these, you know, your 10 second interval is really like a six, maybe seven second interval. Um, is there, you know, from a technology standpoint, is there a, a way to maybe, I don't know, fix that? But, you know, what I was thinking is like, is there a way for the device to kind of look at the entire workout and see what's coming and kind of like pre-ramp into that interval and, and then fall off after the desired time? Definitely. So especially with the watt bike sampling data so quickly, the biggest challenge with the initial product development was making the ride sensation feel smooth. So uh, the resistance changes were actually intentionally slowed by us to ensure that the riding sensation feels consistent. A lot of the ergo mode usage is dependent upon the ability of the rider to maintain a consistent cadence. So if your cadence is erratic when you're riding, the bike is going to have a very tough time adjusting the resistance to accommodate the power target that you're trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. So our smart bike basically slows that resistance change down to make sure that you're aiming for that exact power output uh, over the entire duration of your interval. But typically that works well in efforts that are a minute or longer in duration. So if you're trying to perform, let's say 10 seconds on 10 seconds off, you're basically going to be encountering a consistent resistance change all the way throughout that riding session, because the bike's always going to be trying to adjust. However, if you're performing longer efforts, or maybe a a ramp or step style protocol, that's where the smart bike technology really works well because you can just ride mindlessly. The bike's going to automatically adjust the resistance for you. And as long as you can maintain an appropriate cadence, you're going to be able to have a very smooth and fun riding sensation. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that because you're right, like everybody's cadence changes, especially I think on a trainer, if you're zoning out and all of a sudden you're pedaling at 60 RPM instead of 80. But yeah, the erratic nature of it, which is just normal, right? Like none of us are holding a perfect cadence all the time. Yeah, it's interesting that you have to kind of like smooth that power just to sort of maintain it evenly throughout the ride. Yeah, your pedaling cadence even changes throughout each respective revolution, and the bike is capable of monitoring that. So the watt bike can sense those cadence changes uh, at micro points throughout each pedal revolution. So what you see on the screen is your average cadence for that particular pedal revolution. So if the bike adjusted every time your cadence changed, you would encounter a very jerky and uneven riding sensation. So you want to make sure that you can pedal smoothly and lightly, but we've also slowed the, the resistance changes to make sure it feels normal and natural. Yeah, cool. So what, uh, you know, ignoring just the form factor difference of the watt bike being a stationary bike versus, you know, like the smart trainers that, or, or compared to other smart bikes as well, like what are like the, the key kind of features or technologies that separate yours from the competition? The biggest thing is the data collection. So we've been the gold standard in power data collection for quite a while. Uh, hence the reason the bike is being used by the UCI and the Talent ID Initiative. Uh, same with the USA Cycling Search for Speed and the NHL Combine for Hockey. So the bike is capable of providing over 42 data parameters out to five decimal places. So with these data parameters, we can go into a lot of detail if you're using the bike in a clinical setting, as many universities do. But it's also robust enough for you to be able to train on it and give it quite a bit of abuse. So if you're a powerful athlete sprinting on there day in and day out, as many uh, professional athletes in power sports do, the bike will hold up to that. But if you need to use it in a clinical setting for research or more sophisticated testing, you can do that as well and know that the data that you're going to see is accurate and reliable. 
Does the power measurement, like the resistance measurement, um, is that something that, I don't know, like loses accuracy over time or is it just a software thing that is always right? The bikes are factory calibrated and should never require any recalibration unless you're changing any of the internal components. So as I mentioned, the bike is capable of sampling force very quickly. We have multiple cadence sensors throughout each pedal revolution. So there are a series of force coefficients that go into the uh, algorithm that combines the force data with the velocity data or the time it takes the crank arms to elapse the cadence sensors. So we're very confident in the hardware. And as long as the bike is calibrated appropriately the first time out of the factory, which they're all checked to be, the bikes work very, very well, which is why they're used in so many professional settings. From a, a uh, industry perspective, you know, esports is growing. You have, you know, Zwift has um, their kind of like open to everyone series launching in 2024. And MyWoosh has the next three years of UCI esports championships. Is, you know, the, there's also a lot of talk about people who game the system and cheat somehow, you know, mechanically cheat. Is there, do you see any, movement toward equipment standardization or equipment testing where like, you know, say Watt bike would get like, you know, UCI approval as accurate and then also have any kind of like signaling if it had been tampered with so that when you log into, you know, whatever platform is hosting the event that they would be able to tell if the device had been altered. So one of the big things with the Watt bike data is it's all open API. And as I mentioned, it's very, very detailed. So we can export all of the signal data through a CSV file. So everything will show up exactly as it was presented by the rider's output on the bike. So when you actually take a look at the data files, there's not really much opportunity to uh, tamper with it unless you're doing something that you probably shouldn't be doing in the first place. So there's definitely an opportunity for a lens of truth underneath the data that you see on the monitor and behind the app. You can go in and see everything in much more vivid detail. So that hasn't really been a concern for us. Okay. Is there, um, when you say export as a CSV though, like I'm thinking like maybe that's something the coach looks at, but when you're in the middle of a competition, you know, like Zwift or MyWoosh or whatever, they're not looking at a CSV file. They're just seeing your rider performing a certain way. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I was just curious, like it seems like there's going to be this kind of next wave of certified equipment, much like, you know, the bikes have to be get the UCI stamp of approval before they can be used in competition. But you're not hearing anything like that. I mean, for us, all the data is there and available. So if a third party platform wants it, they can certainly grab it. Uh, same with the users. Obviously, they have access to all the data that the bike is providing. So for us, uh, the Watt bike was created before e-racing was really much of a thing. So from that standpoint, obviously, our initial objective was to create a bike that felt very much like a real bike that had a very enjoyable riding experience that was capable of producing better data than anything else out there was able to. So we provide the tools and however the platforms want to interpret that, we're, um, we're willing to collaborate, of course. But at the end of the day, the organizations and athletes that choose our bikes are the ones that are trying to use it for a specific purpose in many cases. So performance development, rehabilitation, whatever it may be, we just want to make sure that our hardware and the metrics it's providing are going to be appropriate for anyone who's trying to use it. Gotcha. I just out of curiosity, not to belabor that point, but you know, this is my personal curiosity is like, how tamper proof is that? Like, is there a way to... Um 
hack it so that it exports kind of falsified data to make you look faster than you are? So that probably wouldn't be much of an option, uh, especially with the factory calibration. So using those force coefficients and the signal data, um, everything is pretty transparent. So unless you're interested in trying to manipulate that algorithm, which I don't see why anyone would want to do, uh, you're able to basically lay out all the data as it should be seen. Gotcha. Cool. Right on. Anything else that you're particularly excited about with in terms of training or the device or you know technology, anything that I didn't ask about that you'd like to share? Not at the moment. <laughs> all right. That means I did a good job. <laughs> no, I think you covered it all. Thank you very much. Yeah, Thompson, thanks a ton for coming on the show. I appreciate it and definitely love geeking out on this kind of physiology stuff. So yeah, thanks. I appreciate you having me, Tyler. If you like this episode and have a product or tech you're curious about, head over to bikerumor.com slash podcast and fill in the form to submit your idea. You'll also find links and photos for this episode there, plus a link to this and every other episode we've ever recorded. If you really like this and want more, hit subscribe on your favorite podcast player and leave us a rating and review. That's the grease that keeps our wheels spinning over here in podcast land, and it helps us keep getting amazing guests for you. You can find us on social. We're at Bike Rumor on all the things. And if you like random entrepreneurship, NFT, Web3, cycling stuff, you'll find me at Tyler Benedict on all the social channels. Thanks for listening. Until next time, keep the rubber side down.